An important phrase is thought to have been coined around the 1960s or 70s, but we'll come back to that in a moment. The Fortune Cookie was a screwball comedy that came out in 1966, directed by legendary filmmaker Billy Wilder. The two stars? Why, they were none other than acting icons Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Other than being a widely well-received movie, maybe the most notable fact here is that this was the first film that Lemon and Matthau started together, two years before their legendary turn in The Odd Couple. As the years rolled on, Lemon and Matthau would work together ten times, and while it was always nice to see them in films together, the word repetitive does come to mind. That phrase I was going to mention, here it is. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well... Somebody ought to fix that phrase, because nine films in, Lemon and Matthau, as good as they are, may have reached their limits. Hello there. My name is Adam St. John. I'm an actor, professor, podcaster, and a millennial. And this is Rewind 2552. That's right. We're going back a quarter of a century to the week to discuss the newest and highest grossing entry into the U.S. box office 25 years ago. 52 weeks in a year, <laughs> and it's just me again. <laughs> My guest this week is me. Um, and, you know, I, I'm glad I didn't make anybody else watch this movie. We're talking about Out to Sea, um, the the Jack Lemmon, Walter, Walter Matthau comedy, you know, it's, it's, it's a comedy. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't want to subject anybody else to this movie. So, um, so it, it's just me talking about it, and... Uh, and we're going to go from there. So I guess a little bit about this point. So now it's it's summer. It's, the week we're talking about specifically here is July 4th through the 10th, 1997. You know, I'm still uh, all of 10 years old, although it's the summer now. Summer going into fifth grade. A real pivotal year, actually, um, going into fifth grade because um, even though we didn't know each other yet, my wife and I would actually be going to the, the same school for the first time in fifth grade, uh, our uh, school districts were changing a little bit, and I would I would eventually be going to the same school as my future wife, though we wouldn't meet for a few years. Um, and it's the summer, so I'm sure I'm causing all sorts of shenanigans during the day, as anybody did back then uh, when you were in the summer and you had you had nothing to do. I'd ride my bike and uh, hang out with friends and uh, probably have way too much sugar. But that's enough about me. We don't want to hear any more about me. And to be honest, I don't know that I have that much to say about this movie. So. Um, some things from this week in July, the 4th through the 10th. On July 5th, Wimbledon women's tennis, 16-year-old Swiss Martina Hingis beats Jana Novotna 266363 to become the youngest Wimbledon winner in 110 years. Martina Hingis would go on to be quite the dominant force in tennis until... Um, God, who was it? Oh, yeah, the Williams sisters came around. Uh, but uh, Martina Hingis, back in 97, 16, and just dominating tennis. Um, So this other thing, I only have one other thing, but it's kind of sad. And I, I didn't know much of this, and I think it's starting to come out a little bit. Um, So on July 4th, 4th of July this year, um, Bill Murray married uh, costume designer Jennifer Butler. Um, They would be married for a little over 10 years. They would divorce in 2008. Um, but man, it's, there was some, some rough stuff 
that came out. Um, apparently, when she filed for divorce, she um, uh, said that the divorce was on the grounds of uh, Murray's drug addiction, physical abuse, adultery, and abandonment. Um, apparently, she also filed a restraining order. Um, she kept the kids. Uh, apparently, he he hit her. No, no, no formal ch- uh, charges were ever brought. Um, but I think in terms of what uh, happened in court for the divorce settlement, um, she got seven million dollars, and she got to keep their home in North Carolina, or sorry, uh, South Carolina. Um, but just kind of bringing a, a a bad view there on on Bill Murray, and and I know you know if we dig into anybody's life, I'm sure we'll see things that aren't necessarily positive. But um. I didn't know all that about Bill Murray, and I guess at this point it is still, you know, uh, you have to use the word allegedly because that's that's all we know. But yeah, not the uh, not the best thing in the world to hear. So sorry to leave you there, but we're gonna go. Uh, we're gonna pivot now to the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, so the number one song in the country is still "I'll Be Missing You" by Puff Daddy, featuring Faith Evans and 112. So instead, what we're gonna hear is a snippet from the number eight song. This week in the country. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Don't think I can keep it all in. I just gotta let you know what it is that won't let me go. It's your love. It just does something to me. It sends a shock right through me. I can't. Yes. Oh, how sweet. We are, of course, talking about Tim McGraw featuring his wife, Faith Hill, in It's Your Love. Uh, For both of them, it was the first ever top 10 hit that they had on the Billboard Hot 100, which would peak at number seven. Um, It would top the Billboard Hot Country songs um, in its fifth week on the chart, and it would stay there for six weeks. The uh, and apparently this is a thing because I'm not big into country music. At the Academy of Country Music Awards, uh, they gave it single song, video, and vocal event of the year. And at the Grammys, it was up for two, not winning either of them. It was up for best country collaboration with vocals, which it would lose to Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood for In Another's Eyes, and it would lose best country song to a song I've actually heard of before, and I think I've I've mostly mocked, but I, I would need to hear it again before I could really speak to it is butterfly kisses um so uh that that one best country song of the year that's about all i know of the song too so that that gives you uh a little taste into the authority that i have on country music so before we get to uh the film discussion this week we will quickly recap the top 10 films at the box office this week so number 10 and down two spots and previous episode of the show speed two number nine and new this week Wild America. Number eight and down one spot and previous episode of the show, The Lost World Jurassic Park. Number seven and down one spot and previous episode of the show, Con Air. Number six, and the reason we're here is out to sea, but I'm going to come back to this in a second. Uh, Number five and staying where it was last week and previous episode of the show, Batman and Robin. Number four and holding true from last week as well, My Best Friend's Wedding. Number three and down two spots, Hercules, but number two and number one, 
Number two, and staying exactly where it was in previous episode of the show, Face Off, and number one, and up two spots this week to get to number one, Men in Black. So coming back to Out to Sea. Now, if you listened to our Face Off episode, uh, you would um, heard would have heard me give the little IMDb description of Out to Sea, but you also would have heard me say that Out to Sea was number 10 last week on the, uh, the box office's top 10. Well, um, generally speaking, movies open on Fridays, but given the fact that this Friday was July 4th, I don't think that the movie might have opened necessarily on that Friday. So technically opened on the second, which would have lumped it into the previous week's um, box office budget. So when I listed out to see as the number 10 film of last week, it was true, but um, because it did it officially open on that Wednesday, but generally speaking, it's the, the Friday. So anyway, that happened, whatever we're here. I'm not talking about men in black. Instead, I'm talking about out to see, which is, um, well, it's a movie. All right. So uh, let's just hop right to it. So directed by Martha Coolidge, written by Robert Nelson Jacobs. Um, uh, Coolidge directed uh, uh, Valley Girl, which is one of Nick Cage's first uh, real big acting gigs. Um, it's done a lot of a lot of TV one-offs. Um, Robert Nelson Jacobs uh, has an Academy Award nomination for screenwriting for probably one of the worst films to ever be nominated for Best Picture, and that would be Chocolate. Come at me, anybody. That movie is terrible. Um, so. The the cast, so obviously we have our, our two leads, Jack Lemmon as Herb Sullivan and Walter Matthau as Charlie Gordon. So some other folks in this movie. We have Diane Cannon who plays Liz. She is the woman that Charlie, Walter Matthau, is trying to uh, woo. We have Gloria DeHaven as Vivian who is the woman that Herb, Jack Lemmon, starts to fall in love with. And then our kind of our surrounding cast, um, Elaine Stritch plays Mavis. She plays uh, uh, Liz's mother. Estelle Harris plays Bridget. You would uh, know her as the voice of Mrs. Potato Head in the Toy Story films. Um, and she is just another kind of um, attendee on this cruise. Hal Linden plays Mac Valor. And uh, Donald O'Connor plays Jonathan Devereaux. These are two of the other dance uh, hosts on the ship. They are lovely. Brent Spiner plays Gil Goodwin. He is the cruise director. We will come back to him because, wow. Um, and uh, and there are some others on here, but I think we'll just leave it there. Um, so uh, in terms of accolades, none. There are none to give. Uh, in terms of the question, because we talk about the fact that this is 1997 and that Siskel and Ebert were at the height of their power, did this movie get two thumbs up? Um, if you would ask me before looking this up, I would have said no. Um, and guess what? They did. They did give it two thumbs up. Siskel and Ebert this year have picked some weird ass films to give two thumbs up to. And I don't know. I, I don't know what was going on. I think maybe they were just, they were just going, they were going for it this year. Um, but they, but they were in the minority, uh, 36% critical, 52% audience Rotten Tomato score. So, um, not necessarily beloved by all in terms of, uh, some some trivia just a couple of things here um like i mentioned in the intro this is the ninth pairing of these two actors and films uh this was the last film appearance of donald o'connor who um 
is the guy in the movie who is the tap dancer. Also, if you've seen Singing in the Rain, he is the one who does make him laugh. Dunlop O'Connor is just breathtaking in Singing in the Rain, and it was so great to see him um, not only tap dance, but also um, have a great little dance number with Elaine Stritch, who also has her roots in Broadway. Um, that was just a really great moment. But also, so this was apparently meant to be, somehow this plot was supposed to be wrapped into the, uh, as the third Grumpy Old Men movie. I have not seen either Grumpy or Grumpier Old Men. Um, and this is a question, and, and I guess we'll kind of get into the movie here in a second. So, because I want, I want to come back to uh, these Grumpy Old Men. But before I do that, just quickly, I guess the plot. So basically, <laughs> I still don't quite understand this. So, so uh, Herb has recently lost his wife who was also uh charlie's sister and um he is still kind of grieving for her and and wanting to um not not forget her and remember her and and keep her memory alive walter matthau is like a a kind of a, a chronic gambler like a degenerate gambler who is in debt to the mob and then suddenly they're on a boat and he gets on a boat they, they he, he gets them on a cruise as dance host because he knows somebody who was a dance host that met his now wife who was loaded so uh jack lemon is sort of strung along on this journey with uh, Walter Matthau to find a basically uh, Walter Matthau is a gold digger and he's trying to find um, some money in which he can live on and that's that's basically the plot and then of course um, he meets uh, Walter Matthau meets uh, Liz and like ooh she's rich but he also starts to fall for her and Herb wasn't looking for love and he sees Vivian and so on and so forth so coming back to this idea that this is um, could have been the plot for the third grumpier uh old men movies i don't know who this movie is for this to me is the kind of movie that feels like they're banking on the senior citizen aarp crowd going to see these movies on like a wednesday at noon and hoping that a lot of them are going to do it because because i don't i don't really know i i I don't get this movie. It it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I obviously feel bad that that Herb has lost his wife and that he's still grieving for her and that absolutely makes sense in terms of a plot, but you know, we we have we have Walter Matthau, we have Charlie go over to Herb's house and basically be like, you know, you're um I got these cruise tickets and you're going to come with me. And Herb is like, no, 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 nope, not going to do it, not going to do it, not going to do it, never. And then all of a sudden they're on the plane. And it's like, wh- that doesn't make any sense. How did he get there? What it, what was said to convince Herb to come on? So I, th- there's a lot of big logic gaps in this movie. Um, there's also quite a bit of, uh, I'm not even sure what the right, like, accepted, like, misogyny. There's a lot of, like, at one point, Again, when when uh, Charlie is trying to tell Herb about the plan, he says there's going to be a bevy of pretty broads and also then calls them lonely rich broads. What? I mean, I felt like broads was a thing that you might have heard in like 30s and 40s noir. Are these guys just so old that they haven't adapted to the time and like they're just, hey, this this cruise is gonna have plenty of rich broads. It's like what? what? Okay, great, good good for you. This is a a, a swell movie. Um, 
And that, and and then I I also it's just so funny the way that like themes work on this. Not only is this the second cruise related film, if you uh, if you include Speed Two colon Cruise Control, but also the second time that the uh, the word gangplank has been used so effortlessly in a movie and ha- and having it make absolutely so much sense. Um, I just and don't get me wrong, there are some some gifted gifted actors in this. I mean, outside of of Walter Walter Matthau and Jack Lemon, you know Elaine Stritch, who is is the mother in this, is, is just so funny, and and she's got her roots to to Broadway musicals. Her, one of her first lines is, "I need a crap and a nap," and I'm like, "Man, wow, you are speaking my language." Uh, a good poo and a nap, and I'm like a new person. So like I was I was already like Elaine Stritch is my spirit animal in this movie. Um, and then we get to see Donald O'Connor, just so dapper. They even let him tap a little bit. That was amazing. Um, and then I had one of those moments. I've had, I've had a bunch of these moments on this podcast where I recognize somebody and I'm like, wait a second. Who the fuck is this person? And the cruise director, Brent Spiner. I was like, I knew it. I knew it. I knew him in something. And I did the quick IMDB search. Not only... Is is Brent Spiner in like the biggest hit of 1996, which is just the year before, but he's got a fairly memorable memorable role. He's in Independence Day. He plays the like the crazy doctor in Area 51 who like has not seen daylight, and that get like the alien uses him as like a conduit to to speak its alien voice. I I couldn't believe that. That was an amazing amazing find, and um, I'm I'm so happy to have to have noticed that. So. So we're on this boat and I mean it's just it's just a bunch of farcy comedic bits. You know, we've got Jack Lemon basically playing the straight guy and actually kind of falling in love with Vivian and getting to know her and and uh, you know, she's kind of letting her guard down and he's kind of letting his guard down, and that's great. And then everything with with Charlie and like they couldn't obviously get the Bond music, so the the music is like as close to Bond music as you can get before MGM and the fucking broccoli family is like gonna come down and fucking chop your heads off. But um, <laughs> so so yeah, and then we've got all of this like I I I'm so confused. Like I do I love how um like in your face Walter Matthau is at what point he's like the 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 stuffy British guy goes where'd you go to college and. Walter Matthau goes, a little place called F.U. And I was like, ooh, okay, this is getting a little feisty. And then we're betting $5,000 that the top card is a picture? What? And then it jumps up to $20,000? I I really couldn't believe this movie. I, oh, man. I, I, I think if I was talking this over with somebody, I, I might genuinely have more to say. This is going to be one of the, the saddest episodes of this of this podcast we've, we have ever done. Um, you know, because and then as I'm, as I'm watching the movie, I'm seeing all of these kind of really bad 90s tropes. We've talked a little bit in the last few weeks of like the really bad stunt double casting. You know, there's a moment where Jack Lemmon falls through a... Uh, a luggage carrier full of luggage, and it's very clearly a man decades younger than him. Um, but there's some other there's some other '90s tropes that I I noticed, and uh, that's really interesting. There's a moment where where, where Jack Lemon kisses the Vivian character, 
and this music, this score, just it's just this amazing thing where like the kiss is clearly oh the kiss, this magical kiss, this magical romantic comedy kiss that will solve all the problems despite the fact that it hasn't solved any problem. Um, I thought that was I thought that was hilarious. Um, but also the the that like 90s trope of the age difference being acceptable and maybe because they were both older we didn't think about it but so Walter Matthau was around 77 when making this movie Diane Cannon was 60 like that's that's 17 years I guess maybe if you're that old I guess who who gives a shit but like man I just I what did Diane Cannon see in him I you know and that's that's just bad story writing and like of course she doesn't see shit because because that that's what we're meant to believe but oh man i this was just this is not good not good storytelling um and there are some you know fairly funny moments um i think uh i do think that it was interesting that we uh even in 97 we we can go back and find a a donald trump reference donald donald trump is calling you from zurich Uh, that that clearly has not aged well um but like I thought, I thought there were some funny moments. It, but it's 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 interesting because we've talked a, a lot on this pod so far about how the comedy of of of, of well, comedies don't age well. And you know, there's a couple of lines that I I laughed at, but I'm also like, man. But I also don't, you know. There's a when when Walter Matthau was talking about um, Liz, he says something to the extent of, oh God, what is it? With an ass so beautiful, it's a shame. She has to sit down on it, and I'm like, God, I. I that's just is like. It, it it's obviously just objective objectifying her, like to the to the nth degree. There's another line where he's talking to Elaine Stritch, and she and she goes, "I saw the way you were looking at my daughter's chest," and he goes, "Well, I used to be a cardiologist," which did make me laugh. I did chuckle a little bit then, but it's still it's all about like tits and ass. It's all about like let's just talk about the way that she looks and and nothing else. Um. Which is just—it's just unfortunate, and it clearly it it, it dates the movie a lot. Um, so so one thing about this movie that surprised me as I'm as I'm watching the credits, this movie is edited by Anne V. Coates. If you if you don't know who Anne V. Coates is, uh, well, first of all, shame shame on you, and you might uh, you might not be a cinephile, which is okay. Uh, allow allow me to to uh, help you out here. Anne V. Coates was the editor for Lawrence of Arabia. She won an Oscar for it. She would also go on to be nominated for a few more Oscars for editing Beckett, The Elephant Man, In the Line of Fire, and Out of Sight. But she also clearly had a sense of humor, and it didn't take her job too seriously for editing movies like this, editing movies like Striptease and Masters of the Universe. But multiple Oscar nominated and Oscar winning editor Ann V Coates edited this this she edited this edited this this shit sandwich of a film I mean I, I I don't even know what else to say uh this movie is 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 garbage it's it's really not that good um it's very dated it tries to throw in some heart it doesn't really work and if you've been following along if if you've watched liar liar recently this score which was not done by the guy who did the score uh, for liar liar whose name was um john debney this was scored by david newman but it's almost like it was late in the game and Newman hadn't comp- composed the score yet and then watched Liar Liar. I was like, ah, yes, we're just going to take that and use it. Um, 
but uh, that's that's what I got there. I I have nothing else really to say about this movie, so we're gonna get to the the categories and the uh, awards. So, for the Cuba Gooding Jr. Icarus Award for the performer who rose the highest and fell the furthest, I'm not sure how applicable that award is for this movie. Mostly because of the age of all of these actors, they're not at their highest heights anyway, but they're still clearly doing their job. Um, if anything, you could say uh, I might just say it's Robert Nelson Jacobs who you know had had this movie. A few years later, would go on to do Chocolat and get nominated for it, but then didn't really get to do shit afterwards. So we're gonna give it to Robert Nelson Jacobs because fuck that guy and fuck that movie and fuck Chocolat because yeah, because all of those things. Oh, so this next one's tough. The Dante's Peak Award for the performer or director who is currently held in the highest regard. Now, a lot of, again, and not to be morose, a lot of the people who are in this movie have sadly passed away. But in terms of their legacy, it's going to be either Lemon or Mathau. And I personally, and, and God, come at me, please, if I'm, if I'm wrong on this one, but I got to give it to Jack Lemon. I think Jack Lemon did more work that I found to be serious or um, compelling. You know, it's hard because I think around the time that like I'm growing up, I, I, I recognize Walter Matthau from like Dennis the Menace and other comedies that really just aren't that good. And I know Jack Lemmon did a bunch of those too, but like Jack Lemmon was also in The Apartment and Glengarry Glenn Ross. And like, I can just say those two things right there. And that's, that's all I really need to say. So I, I think it's Jack Lemmon. Also, again, doing the research, the voice in this movie is is the reason I even noticed this, but Jack Lemmon does the voice of the pretzel vendor guy in that episode of The Simpsons where Marge starts selling pretzels. Um, uh, the Twisted World of Marge Simpson, I believe is what it's called. Um, check it out if you want to hear Jack Lemmon doing a, a brief voice cameo in that in that episode. Um, okay, now to the, the 90s awards. There are some very, very obvious winners for some of these, and I can't wait to talk about them. So the first one is the Talk to the Hand Award for the most dated piece of dialogue. This one, as soon as I heard it, I knew this was the answer. Um, I believe that uh, Jack Lemon is talking uh, to Vivian and asking, like, you know, give me your life story. And she's like, like the whole thing, that, that we're only on this cruise for only 10 days. And he goes, give me the Reader's Digest version. I, I would be so surprised if anybody who was like 21 years old even knows what Reader's Digest is. My grandparents used to subscribe to Reader's Digest. It was always, there was always like the last month's issue in the bathroom and then the current one on their coffee table. And that was always what they had. And oh man, Reader's Digest. No more. I don't, I don't think, oh my God, let me know if you're listening to this and you know that Reader's Digest is still a thing. You have to tell me, so so please let me know. For the I'm waiting for my facts award for the most dated prop or idea, this one is very obviously the husband's camcorder. Um, that thing is is ancient in all of the best ways. I I got a very big kick out of watching that. Although you could say dated idea being just Trump as respected businessman because. <laughs> Oh man, oh, the mighty have fallen. Um, okay, oh, this is tough. The holy shit, they were in this movie award for the best surprise performance or cameo. I didn't know, and I didn't know anything about this movie, so I didn't know Estelle Harris was going to be in this. I didn't know Elaine Stritch was going to be in this, and I, I certainly didn't know that Independence Crazy Independence Day Crazy fucking 
scientist guy, Brett Spiner, was going to be in it. But to me, this is Donald O'Connor. I Singing in the Rain is is one of my absolute favorite films, and he is just such a joy to watch. And for me, this was pretty easy. I'm, I'm giving it to uh, to make him laugh guy. Donald O'Connor wins this one. Uh, and for the Great White Ninja Award for the most problematic storyline slash character slash piece of dialogue, um, so I almost went with there's an awkward line where um, basically Jack Lemmon is teaching Walter Math how to dance because he doesn't know how to do it. And, the, and basically he has to show that he can still dance so they don't get kicked off the ship. And then the two, Donald O'Connor and the other guy, come in as they're dancing and <laughs> Walter Matha goes, it's my first time. And then Jack Lemmon goes, a dancing. And then the, the other guy goes, oh, of course. Don't ask, don't tell. And, you know, I'm not... I, I, you know, I'm not going to sit here and claim to know the whole history of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and when that went away, but like it almost, it's a bit divisive for the time, I would think. Maybe it got some laughs, but like now especially, it's, I feel like, oof, that, that hasn't aged well. But I'm actually giving it to the overall, um, just the misogyny and, and uh, objectification of women in this, in this movie, um, specifically of the Diane Cannon, um, uh, Liz character. If I get that right, is it Liz? Liz, yeah, character. Just, I don't know. Like, I, and I get that she, and, and for a 60-year-old woman, she looked great. Don't get me, I'm taking nothing from her. I think she was a very, she was a very striking woman, but just the way that the women are treated in this movie, even at, at, at their age, it's just like, no, we can do better than this. Um, so that, that has not aged all that well. Um, this next one I thought was pretty easy. I actually came to this one uh, quicker than I thought I would. Uh, the show is called Rewind 2552, but we do a segment here called Fast Forward 2552, where you can recast the director in a major role with somebody working today. Um, I, I changed two roles. You got to replace. You got to replace Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, and I'm going to work with. I'm going to replace them with two guys who are working together today. Um, so uh, I am going to replace the director with Rob Reiner, who clearly knows the rom com game. And uh, I am going to replace uh, Jack Lemon with Steve Martin, and I'm going to replace Walter Matthau with Martin Short. You know, the whole, I haven't seen the Only Murders in the Building show, but, uh, you know, they're working together now. I, maybe it could get, gain some some attention because of their, their work together. I, who, who knows? Who knows? For the next few questions... These are going to be really quick, unfortunately. I'm just going to tell you right now. So for the Oscar re-examination question, is there anything that this movie should have been nominated for? No. Does this film make anybody's Mount Rushmore? No. And the question I read at the end of every episode, as I do, verbatim, in another 25 years when the world descends into chaos and madness, will anyone remember this film? Will it be worthy of another re-examination? The answer here is no. No. This is a pretty forgettable film. Um... It's the ninth of 10 movies that Lemon and Matha would work on together. The 10th one being The Odd Couple 2, which I have not seen. Have to imagine it's just as not good. But I would I would even say it would be more remembered because people would go, oh my God, there's a sequel to The Odd Couple? But they did so many better movies together. They did so much better work over the, the course of their career that there's no way this is going to be remembered. Um, I... I barely remember this as a movie at all before starting this. I'd never seen it, and now I have. Do I regret it? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's not as bad as The Saint, which is which is time I'll never get back. Um, 
this was okay. I wish I had had somebody else to talk to about this. Maybe I could have rambled on a bit more about some of the shit. But honestly, I just, it's almost like about content at this point, right? Right. We got to, I can't let a week go by. We got to do the 52. We got to do it. We got to keep 97 going. So that's that. So this has been Rewind 2552 talking about Out to Sea. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, no, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all the major places. And here is the IMDb description for next week's film. Dr. Ellie Arroway, after years of searching, finds conclusive radio proof of extraterrestrial intelligence sending plans for a mysterious machine. That is next week. My name is Adam, and this has been Rewind 2552.